So I've been uh, this summer challenging this community to open their ears, to listen uh, carefully as they go through their life to a voice which is always around us, but sometimes we go for a long time uh, not hearing or forgetting to listen to, and it's the voice of creation. We have a God who we worship as the creator, the one who uh, made everything around us. And so I'm challenging us this summer as we spend these precious few months in warmth out and about um, in creation to listen, to open our ears, to listen to what's around us. And I love this picture because there's a little red-winged blackbird that lives outside my uh, office window. I put a, a bird feeder up, and he's a red-winged blackbird. And his name is Spartacus because he's aggressive. He chases off the blackbird. Sometimes I'll be driving in, and I'll see him chasing off a blackbird, and I'm just like, go, Spartacus. Um, but, but Spartacus teaches me that God, God is a defender, He's someone who will defend us. And uh, last week we talked about creation having a voice. It's always speaking, always saying something. And if we have ears to hear, it will be giving us messages about the creator God, who God is, who his character is, uh, and what he's about. I don't know if you've um, heard the, this, one of the Psalms. The Psalms are a book of prayer, prayers in the Old Testament, in the Bible. Uh, many of the psalms talk about the, the trees waving in worship. And uh, that's not metaphorical. I mean, I, I was walking down the, the pathway uh, up, up by the, the university, and the wind was going, and, and I was sort of listening and looking, and the trees were doing this, you know, and it's like, wow, like there's, there's something deeper here, something more mysterious that going on perhaps than we have eyes to see sometimes. So... Um, this is what we're doing this summer, trying to get a good sense of, of God's understanding of the created world, uh, what, what, what it's about, and uh, what the scriptures have to teach us. Um, and I think, I've, I've never played a video on slides before. There's a video coming up, and I think it's the next one. Uh, I was so upset yesterday because my car ran out of battery, and I was a bit stranded uh, here at the church, and uh, I had to walk like oh, 20 minutes. It's so hard. Um, but as I did, I was um, walking by uh, uh, the university here again, and I was just struck by something that was happening right in front of me. And I have a video here. Let's see if it works. It must be so new. I mean, they look brand new, huh? Just like, I see you. And mom wasn't too happy that I was there for a while lingering, but she was pretending I wasn't. But that, this was on Balmoral. I mean, I was walking up Balmoral, and this is what, what I saw. And I would never have seen it if I was rushing in my vehicle from one place to another. I almost missed it walking. Um, but this is happening around us. You know where this is, right? The aqueduct or whatever, right by the university. Um, this is happening all around us. Uh, and, um, and we miss it. We miss what's going on around us, and I think to our, to our worst. And so this summer, I'm, I'm challenging us to keep our eyes and ears open. And these are the thoughts that I'm going to be kind of un unpacking this summer. Uh, if we're going to be deeply Christian people, 
We must come to revere the creation. I'm looking and digging through the scriptures. I've done a lot of work in my life on, on this topic. And uh, I'm convinced that the scriptures teach us to see something sacred in creation. And um, they te- scripture teaches us to hear the creation's message. And here, here's how this works. And somehow to decrease our prideful attitudes and habits that dominate the community of creation. It's working through these ideas this summer. Now, what I'm talking about is I'm not talking about worshiping creation. I'm not talking about uh, worshiping it as if it's a god or one of the gods of the world. There are many traditions that do that, and I'm not talking about worshiping creation. The Judeo-Christian world sees creation not as um, filled with divinity, but as as some, but as a community that's been created by the creator who is always giving forth messages. So I'm not talking about worshiping creation, but I'm also not talking about what we oftentimes do is dominate creation. And I'm also not talking in terms of giving up on survival because sometimes when we get into creation and environmentalism, we can, we can start uh, feeling as if, well, how are we going to survive? Because it's, we, we, we need to live. We, we, the, the death is around us. We have to protect ourselves. Like, I will take spiders out of my house on napkins, but I will kill any bee that is inside my house. Okay, so I'm like, I'm not talking about giving up on survival, but somewhere in this space in between worshiping creation and dominating creation and survival is this biblical Jewish Christian idea of creation as being sacred. Uh, endowed with sacredness, uh, the fingerprints of the, the king of the world upon it. I'm talking about moving to a space that brings us to humility and a delight in the freedom of all the species in a way which anticipates a day when death is no more. So, uh, last week, remember, we talked about Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies are proclaiming the works of his hand. Now, just in case you've missed the first sermon, it's podcasted on the website. So it'll all, all be there if you uh, just go to the grassroots um, website and you can find the previous weeks if you've missed one. Or if you do miss one, they'll all be podcasted. Uh, but last week, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. And we see that creation is teaching us. If we listen, it's teaching us constantly about who God is. That uh, if you go through this psalm, Psalm 19 talks about the sun and its courses and what we can learn from the the, the heavens and the the, the the stars above us. And we learn that God is strong. That God is wise. That he has joy. There's joy in him. He is abundantly merciful, and God loves his enemies and blesses them despite their evil. This is, the, this is what the Son can teach us, and Jesus goes in that direction too. Uh, but if the heavens, if the stars and the sun can teach that kind of thing about God, then what about the other voices that are out there? What about the whale songs, and what about... The, the, the roars of the great cats of the world? What, ab, what about the, the, uh, the, the ants and their, their, their colonies and communities? What can they teach us? I spent so much time last night trying to find like a 23-second audio file of animal voices that wasn't cheesy. <laughs> it doesn't exist. It's not out there. 
Um, there, is, there was one that was like the five most terrifying sounds in all of creation. And they were, they were terrifying. It was like big cats that were very angry. And I'm like, I don't think I'm going to play that this morning. So uh, what about the rest of the voices of creation? And we'll, we'll get into some of this uh, in three weeks' time when I preach on the last few chapters of Job. Uh, there's a great part of the last part of Job that talks about the rest of the animals and their place in God's creation. Um, so creation is a voice. It's saying something. It's not a, creation's not an object that we use. Creation is a community that we listen to. It has a voice. And um, it's telling something about God. But we also learn from a different part of the Bible, which is what we'll get into today, that creation's voice is also groaning. It's also groaning. And so we get into... Uh, oops, I've lost, I've lost power here, Scott. Yeah, there we go. Romans 8 says this. This is how, this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing, and about uh, 20, 30 years after Jesus lived, he's, he's writing these uh, great, great letters about the life of faith. Paul says, This is how I work it out. The sufferings we go through in the present time are not worth putting in the scales, measuring alongside of the glory that's going to be unveiled in us. Yes. Creation itself is on tiptoe with expectation, eagerly awaiting the moment when God's children will be revealed. Some weird, kind of weird stuff here. Like, what does this all mean? Well, unpack this this morning. Creation, you see, was subjected to pointless futility, not of its own will, but because of the one who placed it in this subjection, in the hope that creation itself would be freed from slavery to decay, to enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. And Paul will go on, as I'll, sh as I'll show us, to talk about creation groaning, just as groaning in some sort of expectation. Now, a few things to point out first here as we get into this this morning. Uh, Paul, Paul is talking about creation, which the word that he's using in Greek, in the Greek language that he was writing in, usually means kind of everything with human beings and everything around us. But in this instance, Paul is comparing uh, creation with humans, our groaning, our waiting, our expectation with creation. And so he must have something like nature in mind, like the animals, the trees, the insects. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's saying something and it has uh, some kind of groaning about it. Now, if... If we're going to understand, if we're going to, to take this part of Scripture and its teaching about creation and get the most out of it and understand what it's saying, we're going to have to realize this, this whole chapter 8 is, is doing something in the book of Romans. And what it is doing is it's talking about the undoing of death. Okay? This whole chapter is about how God is going to undo death. And one of the things about Christianity and why we do this church thing and the people of God thing, if you think that... Christianity is just about like nice feelings and feeling good about yourself. This, this faith is trying to give the greatest answer to the worst issue in all of creation. We are going after death itself. Death will die in this, in this, in this way of being. Now that's what uh, Paul will say. He'll talk, he'll talk about uh, death being the last enemy that will be destroyed. 
And so that when, when um, because Jesus died and rose from the dead, he defeated death on that day 2,000 years ago. And through him and being in him, so also do we have access to that power. And so that, that's what this chapter is about. And he's going to be talking about eagerly waiting for death and decay finally to be gone and for life to come up out of death. And so um, this chapter is about the defeat of death and the path out of slavery. And the important thing to recognize is that as we realize that that's our story, human story is to follow Jesus into the cross and up with him through, through into life out of death. It's not just our story. It's not just a story of humans. It's the story of the whole community. The whole community of creation is in this story with us. And uh, someday the decay of creation and those, those, cute little, those cute little deer who will someday die like we will, uh, will come back to life. And so this is about the story, the big story. Um, but something is wrong and there's suffering in this place now. And so the chapter is not just about the defeat of death. But what do we do now in this sort of in-between time where Jesus has conquered death and the new world isn't here yet? How do we live in the suffering, in the pain, in the expectation, the eager waiting that we're all doing? And Paul says, I'm going to work it out. The sufferings, the things that we suffer through now are not even worth comparing to what's going to happen in this new creation. This is Romans chapter 8. It's a beautiful chapter. It's complex. Um, but here's the point. Through Christ, uh, the whole creation is going to be set free. Um, so he'll go on to say this. Okay. Um, I'm going to. Getting into Romans 8 is like getting into an onion. It's like there's so many layers. But we're going to come into it like this. This is how the, the, the chapter begins. Uh, there's a problem in this world, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walked not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, this is like Pandora's box here of law and gospel and all of that. If you've, if you've read Romans, if you've been into Romans, it's, there's a lot here. And uh, this probably would take me like a semester to teach us about. So I'm not going to get into all this here. But here's the point that I'm drawing out of reading this to you today. Flesh. The word is flesh. Flesh is a problem. This idea of flesh being an issue in the, in the economy of life and death. Um, and so when we get to flesh, the Greek word here is sarkos. And this is, this is a really important point when we talk about creation to jump off. Sarkos is not this stuff. It's not skin and um, hair and tree and um, grass. Flesh, there's a different Greek word for that, which is soma. That's what this is, soma. Sarkos is different. Sarkos, if you do, the, if you do your homework in, in this day and age, sarkos is like, uh, it's not earthiness. It's not your soma. Uh, but it's the fallen world. The, the order of sin that's in the world. Sarkos is fleshiness. It's you 
as you were not meant to be. It's, it's civilization as it's not meant to be. That's the idea. It's not talking. So sometimes as Christians, we can say, oh man, flesh is the problem. Like this earth is, is, is bad and the, the world's going to burn. It's going to go away. It's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible's always talking about a fallen, broken uh, order of, of being, of relating, of, of being human. So uh, sarcos, that's, that's, that's um, what we're, we're getting at here. Uh, that, and... and the part of the, re- the reason why we can get at this in this way is because we read the, the creation stories themselves from Genesis 1. And if you read carefully, God created the, the courses in the sky and it was good. And God created the animals of every kind and it was good. And he created, uh, uh, he separated land and he separated the uh, Sea and he filled the sea with all sorts of swarming things and the earth with all sorts of swarming things, great and small, and he saw that it was good. And then he created on the last day, oftentimes we, we hear it preached like this or spoken like this, he created human beings and it was very good. It's not exactly how Genesis goes. If you read carefully, the sixth day is when humans were created in, that, in the story. But that was also the day that all the animals were created as well. When, it, when God saw it was very good, was that sixth day when he populated this place with a community. That's very good. So when Paul is talking about uh, flesh and flesh being the problem, he's not talking about the community. He's not talking about the earthiness. He's talking about the way of being that the world is. And we all know that it's not as, as it's supposed to be. And look around us. It's dying, for one. Um, so, uh, we need, we desperately, desperately need someone to rescue us from the sarcos. And that's the story that Paul is telling. That's the story that Christianity was telling, that Christianity is telling. So as we get into this, we see that, uh, creation was subjected to pointless futility, not of its own will, but because of the one who placed it in this subjection and the hope that creation itself would be freed from its slavery to decay to enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. In the new creation, we fully expect, like Jesus, to have new bodies, to have new somas. The soma is going to be perfected. The soma of creation is going to be perfected. Um, and, uh, and yet today it's in slavery and we're looking forward to the freedom that's going to come. Now let me unpack this a little bit because this is, this is kind of dense stuff. Uh, we're going to start with this idea of creation being subjected, put in chains. Creation is, uh, is not free as it, as it should be. And the question is, is well, who did that? <laughs> Who's done that subjecting? And if you read it, it doesn't, doesn't really tell us, but whoever subjected creation, whoever did that, who put, whoever put creation in chains, did so with some sort of hope. A long game, we might call it. There's a long game going on, and so, someone put creation in slavery in a long game in hope that creation itself would be freed from its slavery to, to death and decay. And as you, as you read, the only person that can really... Uh, have this type of wisdom is God himself. And oftentimes, any time you come across uh, 
a, pa- a passive type of um, language here. Creation was subjected. Usually, usually we're, we're talking about God in the scriptures. So here's the thing. Why would God put creation in chains, hoping that it would someday be free? Does, that doesn't make sense. Um, it's, it's what Paul is saying. It's what he's telling us here. Uh, he's also telling us, he, uh, he tells us this about the law as well, uh, that the law and creation, it's like they have some, God has some sort of other plan of action in mind that goes deeper than we can see. Uh, and, and it's like this, when human beings fell, when we, when we fell, when our relationship with God was broken, uh, it doesn't say that creation's relationship with God was broken. It says ours was. But somehow, because of our sin, because of our choice, because of our desire to be like God, uh, and we, 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 we fell, we started to die. We, we, uh, things went out of whack. And so in order to save that, in order for, for, uh, for God to make things right, he had to put a long game in action. And part of that long game was to say, all right, creation, I, I created these beings, these men and women, in order to be wise, careful stewards of you. I, I, I put man and woman on the earth so that uh, the ant colonies could thrive as well as the uh, the, the ecosystems of the world. That was their job. Their job was to take care of it. And now it's broken. They've fallen away. And so in order for this to all go right, creation, you got to play a role in this. It didn't, and it didn't want it. It was not its will, but it was God's will. He said, I've got to put you now uh, in subjection underneath these fallen, broken people. Uh, even, they're going to steward and lord, lord over you uh, nonetheless. And uh, this is the only way that this is going to work out. This is what Paul is saying. Don't, I don't fully understand it. I don't fully, under, fully get where he's coming from. But uh, if you read the Old Testament, this isn't something new. This, the, the, um, all along, the prophets, the great prophets of old were saying things like, because humans are so fallen, because they're broken, the earth is crying out. The earth is subjected. It's scorched. If you read the the, the Old Testament law, the way the civilization as God had envisioned it, uh, oftentimes God will say things like, when you go and you take eggs out of the bird's nest, don't take the eggs and the mother. Leave the mother so that it it could continue. When you go, this is my favorite, when you go to your enemy's country and fight a war, don't burn down their olive trees. That's one of the laws of the Old Testament. Because olive trees takes generations to grow. It takes so long. Um, and God says no to that. You, you, you leave the trees alone. Um, and one of the prophets uh, talks about God weeping to see uh, beautiful environments scorched. So, uh, creation is subjected to Adam and Eve and their people, and subjected to what? To pointless futility. This word is like, um, yeah, worthlessness. Pointless, pointless slavery. That's what, that's what creation had to put itself into, to be part of the long story. Um, it's kind of a funny, funny 
picture at first until you really look. When I think about creation being subject to futility, this picture really gets at it. I was in China once, had a, the opportunity to travel through China with a, my, my university uh, cohort. Uh, and we went to a zoo in, in China and um, there was a, a bear that had been drugged up uh, in order so that it, it was, it, and it was dressed in something like this. And it was sitting there on this pedestal without a cage so you can go up and you take your picture with it, get a selfie. Um, and its eyes were just like dazed over, you know. Uh, I, I don't have, to have that picture, but this picture gets close. You, you know, here's the muzzle and this, what often, what, what can look cute, but if you really look in the eyes of this bear, this bear is furious. And, you know, and, and good reason. This, this gets at this. This is human beings deciding to, to subject creation to pointless futility. Uh, anytime creation gets used uh, like this, um, this, is, this is what uh, its role is in, um, in, in the story. And uh, it's playing this role in order for, for us to, to finally um, be as we should have been. This is not the way uh, that creation was meant to be. And it's groaning. It's crying and calling out. And creation, you see, was, and this is where Paul goes on, creation, you see, was subjected to pointless futility and out of its own will. Um, let me explain. We know that the entire creation is groaning together and going through labor pains together up until the present time as we eagerly await the redemption of our bodies. And that's all of us. That's all of creation. So, uh, I, think you, I think you get the point. Uh, anytime creation gets used for something um, that it's not meant to be used for, it groans. And Paul says that as it does so, uh, it, oh wait, there we go, wait, okay, I've, I forgot to put this part up there. Um, I wanted to get into this word, it's waiting. This, uh, crea- Paul says this creation is eagerly waiting with expectation. The, the way that one translator put it, uh, there we go, thanks. Um, with eager expectation on tiptoe. The, the, the word is with outstretched head. That's how it literally comes into English. Um, creation is waiting for us to wake up. Wake up to see it to treat it well, to treat it as it was meant to be treated. Um, The revealing of the children of God, that's you and I becoming the wise stewards of creation that we were originally meant to be. Um, So here's the thing. Creation and its fall is linked to us because of who we are and what we've done. Creation groans um, and is waiting waiting for us to figure out how to, to put things right again. Um, well, it's waiting for the awakening of the children of God. So what is this awakening? How do we, therefore, learn to listen, to wake up to the voice of creation around us, especially in its groaning? What is that? What is a spirit-filled life look like that can revere creation and steward it the way that it was meant to be. Uh, And Paul says this here, all who are led by the spirit of God, you see, are God's children. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery, did you? No, 
Slavery is not God's way. At any time slavery happens, in any circumstance, we recognize that it's gone wrong. You did not fall into a spirit of slavery, did you, to go back again into a state of fear. But you received the spirit of sonship, of daughterhood, in which we call out, Abba, Father. So how do we do this? What, is, what, is a, what does a spirituality look like um, that, uh, that honors and reveres creation? And part of it is first recognizing that things aren't as they should be. When we see any species enslaved, it's not as it should be. Seeing, listening, opening our eyes and ears first, not just plowing through this culture of death that we oftentimes live in and assuming that everything's okay. Uh, I, I mean, I think factory farms are probably the first place we need to be opening our eyes to animals that live their whole lives in cages in order to be harvested. Um, that, that they're groaning uh, in, that, in that situation. But we need to be attentive. We need to, uh, one, one writer put it like this, uh, the way of being is being attentive. Attentiveness is birthed in and sustained in and begets love. Love for God, love for others, and love for God's creation. And it can be a source of great solace and joy. Um, so, um, recognizing that, that part of our job as people of faith is to help anticipate the day when everything is freed from its slavery. What does that look like? What might that look like if we consider creation involved? Uh, attentiveness. Asking ourselves, how can we um, create freedom of species? Now, one of the things that we do as humans as we move away from the domination of creation, which is not the creator's plan, one of the things that we do as we move away is we think, well, uh, let's humanize creation. And so we have all sorts of... I mean, I love Disney movies, don't get me wrong. I'm like, I was, I was singing uh, the soundtrack to The Little Mermaid the other day by myself in the house. I just admitted that to you, okay? You know, little fun little crabs who talk. And, okay, anytime we, we make um, animals into humans, to human features, we've missed it. Like, they are other. They are not human. They don't have human voices. Um, we, need to, we need to give space to, to, to creation in order to let it be who it, who it is meant to be and steward it well. Uh, I don't... I'm going to get in, in, the, in the coming weeks, I'm going to get into uh, some more specifics about what this looks like. Uh, but the, the, fir the first thing we need to do is just wake up. Wake up to realizing that, that domination and slavery is not God's way. That's the, that's the step one. And that's what Paul is trying to talk about here. Um, so open our eyes and ears. Friends, uh, I would suggest, I would challenge you to go walking this summer. If you don't walk outside, Take some walks. You're going to find baby fawns um, in the world around you. You're going, there, I've, I've been cutting pathways through our, um, our parking lot, uh, like a walking trails. It's kind of a weird thing to do, but I'm doing it anyway because I, I think that we have a beautiful opportunity in this space to, um, in, the, in an urban setting, to come and find a little bit of awakening on this property. And if, if you haven't yet even just gone out to look at the grass out there, I mean, the flowers, are, the, the wildflowers are unbelievable. There's so many little yellow flowers in purple and white. And last night, as I was walking away from my, my dead vehicle, 
I, I just took some time in the evening out there. And I just, I was overwhelmed in this small little space at the, how many wildflowers are out there. And I walked through the trails. Uh, so if anything, go for walks this summer and just look around you. Go for walks in the city, go for walks in the country, go for walks. Uh, it's going to help us. It's going to help us to hear the groaning of creation and, um, and to learn to, to open our hearts to what's going on. Um, oh, there's so much I want to say, but I'll, I'll say that for coming weeks. I want to finish with this as we, as we listen to the groaning of creation. I, I went on a, a, a retreat a few years back. Uh, I try to go on retreats every six months just to get away. Uh, a few days just to get out in nature. And I went for one in, oh, I think this was probably 2009, if I'm remembering correctly, and it was in Kentucky, and it was in February. And um, I don't know if you, you, do you guys have hoar frost up here? Does this happen? Okay, I had never heard of this before then. Um, and this happened overnight at the, the retreat. I was, uh, you, you all might expect from... I'll just say it. Y'all might expect from Kentuckians that if a winter, a winter storm is coming, like civilization shuts down. And so this was going to happen, and even the girls were traveling. So I was by myself. I, I, so I took a few days to go out to this retreat center that I knew. And I was by myself because no one else was daring the, the winter. You know, I was by myself out there. And um, I wrote kind of a longer journal entry that I just want to read to us. Uh, it's it's quite, quite long, not like hours long, but um, I just want to read it to us as uh, we finish off today, because I think it, part of this experience that I had began opening my eyes further to, to searching the, what the Bible had to say about creation. So I'm going to read this to us. It's um, a journal entry from 2009-ish, 7-ish, I don't know, somewhere around there. So here we go. Get comfortable. The front edge of the February snowstorm crept up on us who lived on the Kentucky bluegrass. It's pasturing thoroughbreds, the winding creeks of the Appalachian foothills creeped up upon us on the warm earth that had barely frozen this winter. These American Southerners hunkered down and braced for the worst. Winter advisories warned of inches, perhaps five or six, an unusual accumulation this far south. Last year, an ice storm blanketed the region, cracking limbs, killing power, and shutting down society for half a week. But five inches of snow, that would be an event of a decade. So when I heard of the looming forecast that coincided with a weekend where wife and child were visiting grandma, I hurried for the Kentucky woods to a familiar Catholic retreat center with large decisions ahead of us on our life's horizons. These two days would be the perfect chance to breathe deep and listen to the guiding voice of the shepherd. Day one. The first day pass, passes quickly as I read and I eat and I sleep some. I rest, no doubt, but my mind is mingled with struggle. Struggle to let the important tasks of my career and worries to pass away in a cloud of forgetting and to come naked before my creator. Retreat is not a work for the faint of heart, this coming face to face with yourself, really opening up your eyes to who you have become, exploring hidden pride in places you would rather not look, 
yet letting waves of mercy transform our deformed and disappointed hearts. Many unwanted things can grow in the cellars of your soul when the cares of life demand your concern. And though I have come here for clarity of direction, what I find first is the eyes of a living God looking back at me and leading me into the depths of faith, to places where I must go and leave my prepackaged questions and answers behind. Indeed, the day of solitude passes quickly, and as night comes again, I embrace rest, having no idea of the oncoming storm, or what, what the specifics of the oncoming storm, and the gift that was brewing in the freezing of the air. Day two. Dreams come and go, and I am stirred from my bed early today. After sipping some water, I'm drawn to my room's window. The pane is fogged, and I wipe it. And when I do, the view comes to my blurry eyes like a thousand rays of light. The clouds have passed, the sun has freshly awoken, and the frozen world outside gleams. I must get out among this wonder. I practically jump into my wool and boots and pack my breakfast quickly. Before, uh, before I know it, I too have become part of this magnificent morning. Perfectly deep blue skies grace this gift of a day as I walk into a landscape that makes my jaw drop and spirit soar. A trillion, trillion ice crystals have formed on the slumbering, leafless limbs of these woods. At closer look, each branch, each long dead stem of wheat grass is like an ice fern, and the ferns have 10 to 20 leaves. One branch hosts perhaps a hundred crystals, perhaps a thousand, and before me the blazing morning sun glitters a whole frozen wood, a greatly frosted forest. Later I learn that they call this hoarfrost, where the temperatures dip more quickly than the earth, and the cold literally freezes air vapors in millions of magnificent patterns. On this once-in-a-decade day, I sit in awe of the detailed and careful artistry and know that in a few hours, it'll all melt. The old dichotomies of science and faith, they fade from my mind. I see this intermingling world of wonder and precision, and oh, how God must be rejoicing at this beautiful artistry. Today, here in this place, I alone will be its witness. As I lose myself in this grandeur, two panting breaths pull me back to earth. A golden lab and his younger and darker brother find their way through a thicket adjoining from some neighbor's house. We make friends, and uh, indeed, I won't be alone after all. Uh, the wooded retreat center pathway calls me deeper, and though my toes and bones now feel the chill, I had no idea. <laughs> um, I listen to the call and to walk further. I quietly turn another corner. A flutter high above catches my eye. I look to my surprise and see two cardinals, deep in red, jumping through branches. Somehow this sets my spirit on fire in awe. Has any other man seen such a beauty of cardinal and perfect blue sky, jumping from the whitest of branches to another? The dogs, they don't care. They take no notice. And as the pair flit off, I'm caught up in sheer wonder. A deep peace flows over my body and spirit. My life's future is unclear. Uh, and I have been fighting off a nagging anxiety for weeks. But now in this moment, I'm abandoned to this great mystery who we call God, 
who now seems so capable to lead me onwards? What kind of a creator would make a trillion, trillion ice crystals for only one man and two dogs to see? Whoever this God may be, he must be alive and a genius. And I sense now that whatever may come, I will be cared for in a very intricate way. And that wherever my path will lead, those mysterious eyes will be watching. Day three. I leave my cabin now with bags stuffed with wool, packed upon my shoulders, and the sun has turned the ice ferns into a misty air again, laying branches bare. The melt has begun, which will leave this countryside brown and gray in a pre-spring mud. But now I see a bit more clearly, thank thankfully, from this side of Friday, that what I call my faith slips often and easily into anxiety and disappointment. Yet something about this day grows inside of me, convincing me just a little more that there's a great mystery closer than I can often realize, and that hope does not abandon us, even in instances of apparent hopelessness, and that the storms about which we often fear the worst tend to bring us messages, if we have eyes to see and the courage to really get outside. So friends, as the weeks go on, I continue to challenge you to open your ears from what's around you. Hear the voice of creation and its praising of God and its, uh, its messages to us. And uh, hear the groaning as well. Uh, because as we will discuss in coming weeks, there's some work to be done to help anticipate the day in which uh, creation and we will all finally have our freedom. So as we, as we move to the table here, uh, I invite you this morning with whatever's on your heart, whatever you're holding uh, to bring to the table. We have bread and juice here and we do this week in and week out because 2,000 years ago on the night of his death, Jesus uh, reminded us that if we're going to be a people who will keep our eyes open to the hope that's around us, to the hope that is inside of this is the very uh, earth that we live upon, um, then we're going to have to remember over and over again, remember that he broke his body. He went all the way down through death and back up it. If we're going to live on, the, on this earth that is oftentimes full of death and bring life to it in, in Jesus' way, we're going to have to keep remembering. So we remember that he broke his, his body and he shed his blood and that it's in his death that we find new life. And so whatever God is stirring inside of you, I don't know. Uh, but I invite you this morning as you come to take a piece of bread in Jesus' body and dip it into a symbol of his blood. And uh, as you do so, uh, bring whatever is on your mind and heart to God. And use the last two songs that we have this morning here to, uh, to pray and to offer any type of prayers up to God that you have on your heart. So friends, the table is set and everyone here is welcome.